All right, well, we're going to begin today with uh, an issue, the issue of disinformation, a term that's cropping up in news and in political debate with increasing frequency. While we read today reports of Gardaí stepping up patrols at buildings rumoured to be earmarked for asylum seeker accommodation following a series of arson attacks and an upsurge in social media threats to target premises, correctly or incorrectly, identified as being intended for use by international protection applicants. Now, earlier this week, following a fire at an old school in Tipperary, Gardaí said they were aware of what they termed misinformation, disinformation and rumour about the proposed use of that building. And as we face into a year of elections, there are fears too about the impact of bots, deepfakes and so-called bad actors and what effect they could have on results and concern for the impact disinformation may have on the two springtime referendums on family and the current clause in the constitution relating to women in the home. So obviously a lot of areas that could be affected there. Now in a moment I'll be speaking to Dr Eileen Cullity from the School of Communication in Dublin City University but first I'm joined here by Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne who's been warning about the growing threat of disinformation for some time. Malcolm uh, Thanks very much for, first of all, uh, for coming in. Before we get into the nuts and bolts of disinformation, uh, government now has a problem of finding accommodation for asylum seekers and now protecting buildings from attack, even when they may not even be allocated to international protection. Uh, good afternoon and uh, Happy New Year to you and to your listeners. And to you. Uh, yes, uh, certainly immigration uh, is on the political agenda now. And I think it is important that we do have a proper evidence-based uh, debate uh, around immigration policy. Uh, I think uh, as a country, we're mature enough to be able to do that. I think certainly there is a need uh, on the part of government to explain you know, what are our obligations uh, to those who seek international protection here and what are the facilities that are being made available? I think we do need to combat, when there isn't information out there, we do need to combat the misinformation. This idea that, you know, people are coming into the country unvetted or this idea that those who are seeking asylum or, or Ukrainian refugees are getting local authority housing ahead of everybody else. All of those things are untrue. Uh, But it is important that it's communicated clearly to people. The procedures with regard to somebody who does arrive and seeks refuge uh, on uh, these shores, uh, the whole area of direct provision, how it actually operates, because I I find certainly from talking to people locally, uh, that's one of the challenges. Uh, And I think there are... There are concerns, obviously, in a lot of particularly rural communities, and I know I've seen this in Wexford, in Rosslare, where you have tourism facilities, local hotels, taken out of circulation from the local economy, and these are used to attract visitors, but also for local the community occasions. The local cafes and restaurants. And, 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 night, and right. so on. And there are concerns, obviously, on the impact on services in, in those areas. But you said evidence-based, and an evidence-based debate on what the best policy is. But that's the problem, isn't it? What people regard as evidence, what people regard as fact and what's not in fact factual. Uh, that is correct and I think there is uh, and I would hope uh, that you know Roderick O'Gorman and government would do this was, would be to actually outline a, a public information campaign to explain how um, 
policy operates with regard to somebody who comes here and who seeks refuge? Because what I've certainly found is a lot of people don't understand that. And the danger there is when you have a vacuum of information, that vacuum is filled by bad actors. Uh, and, and we hear these tropes thrown out regularly that we've lots of unvetted people getting into the country. That's not the case. People who arrive here, there are particular requirements uh, in, in, in terms of identity and so on that, that they must meet. Well, that process should be explained. And, and and fingerprinted, fingerprinted Europol it, 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 exactly, but you and I know that, but the wider public are not necessarily aware. I know, of but that. public so. representatives in some cases will raise questions like, or or make statements like, people are concerned about unvetted. There is a research facility uh, in the houses of the Oireachtas. Uh, political parties have access to research facilities. If constituents raise questions. Is it not the job of public representatives to answer those questions at ground level with factual information? It it, it is. And I think the majority of politicians are responsible uh, and they engage with the issues and they understand concerns that people have about the potential impact on services uh, within their communities. Uh, And, you know, there are a small number of politicians uh, who are being irresponsible in their, their language. Some are careless. But in some cases, there's deliberate dog whistling uh, for political reasons that are going on. For the rest of us who are involved in politics, one, we need to explain the process. We need to be engaging, yes, in uh, serious concerns, you know, that that can be around loss of facilities within local communities. But at the same time, we also need to call out, uh, you know, arson attacks on, on particular buildings. Arson is a serious crime. There is no justification for it, and the small minority oh, is responsible for that. You know, indeed, have to be I mean, there wouldn't be a justification if a building was earmarked for people seeking international protection. But now it seems that any vacant facility which may be earmarked for any form of emergency accommodation, we have over 13,000 homeless people, 4,000 uh, children, and there are people also seeking international protection. So it's not like the demand is not there, but any vacant facility now, it seems, is, is vulnerable to this misinformation and potential actual attack. Well, well, let's be very clear. Arson is a crime. So, you know, for whatever reason, if you decide to deliberately set fire to a building, uh, it is a serious crime. I, I would certainly share concerns that, you know, it could be more serious that we could end up seeing uh, a, an incident whereby somebody is injured or worse uh, as a result well, of an indeed, arson yeah, attack at some in stage. today's Irish Times, the political editor of the Irish Times, saying if we keep going like this, people are going to be killed. That's what happens when you keep burning down buildings. I mean, if we went uh, back 30 years in Germany shortly after reunification in, I think, the town of Hoyerswerda in Saxony, an asylum centre was burnt down with fatal consequences. And, and, and I would share the, the concerns outlined um, by Pat Leahy. We've experienced on, on our own island in terms of some sectarian actions uh, that would have been t- would have taken place in, in the past. So arson is wrong, whatever, uh, you know, for, for whatever purpose. Uh, I think we do need a communication campaign to accurately explain uh, immigration policy and, and uh, an asylum uh, seeking so that people will, will understand what is happening. And I think then for particularly rural communities where we need to invest in services in those areas and support. I I look at Rosslare, an incredibly welcoming community that already has two direct provision centres. The concerns that are being expressed in Rosslare, they're very welcoming to all the new people coming. It's simply about the lack of facilities within that area. And in the the case of the former Great Southern Hotel, I think a nursing home. I want to go to uh, Dr Eileen Cullity from DCU. Um, Dr Cullity, thanks, uh, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. 
Um, the terms misinformation and disinformation, I suppose let's get into the basics. What's the difference between those two terms? Well, put simply, misinformation is false information that is shared without any intention to deceive, whereas disinformation is false information where there's a very deliberate intention to deceive. So, for example, if an official gave an incorrect figure and then corrected the record when the mistake was pointed out, that would be misinformation. But if an official is deliberately providing false information, then we consider that disinformation. Now, that's a very useful distinction, theoretically, because it allows us to think about the motivations of people involved, but in practice, from the perspective of an ordinary citizen, if you end up believing something that's false, you know, the distinction doesn't really matter to you. All right. A disinformation being, the, I suppose, the more concerning one because it involves people being targeted for uh, the spread of this kind of misinformation with the aim of getting them to act or make decisions in a particular way. So how might people be exposed to disinformation? Where should they be on the lookout for it? Well, we can encounter disinformation anywhere, and there's always been disinformation of some sort. But what's really changed dramatically in recent years is digital media. And now we're bombarded with different kinds of media content. You know, if you think about your social media feed, it's this overwhelming avalanche of news and entertainment and commentary, and it's all jumbled up together. And that's really difficult for our brains to process. You see a post about a cute kitten, then you see a post about a diet, and then you see a false rumour about migrants maybe circulating in your Facebook group. So it puts a huge burden on us as individuals. And we haven't really come up with a good um, response to that, of how we as individuals can, can deal with that. And how does it and get in there, is, there and why does it land on particular screens? Who is targeted for it? I suppose we, we saw during the pandemic era, people who maybe had interests in alternative medicine uh, and you know o- other target groups being particularly targeted for misinformation about vaccines or disinformation about vaccines. Well, exactly. Then there are, so that's there's this general issue with just how do our brains deal with this avalanche of information. And then there are specific features of digital media that benefit disinformation. So, for example, things like online advertising can be highly targeted at you as an individual based on profiles of your life and your interests. And you mightn't even be aware that these profiles are being compiled um, and that your online activity is being tracked. Social media algorithms are specifically designed to kind of attract our attention or you might say hijack our attention and they recommend content that we never asked to see and often that content plays on powerful emotions about fear and anger and again it's tailored to what it thinks our interests are. And who has access to that information that, that gives information about what our preferences and interests are? Well, social media companies, many of them are essentially advertising companies. That's that's how they make their money. They collect uh, data about us. They can sell that data on. One of the the great pieces of EU legislation in recent years was the the GDPR, which most people probably think of as something annoying that they have to to comply with. But it gives us a right to access uh, data. It gives us transparency around how data is collected. That doesn't resolve all uh, all of the problems, though. Right. I mean, there's always been propaganda, but I suppose it has been widespread and scattergun. Politicians have always slung mud at one another. But what's different about what's going on now in terms of the targeting and the sophistication? Well, one thing is just the the speed. So the social aspect of social media is huge as well. We're now in these Facebook groups and WhatsApp groups with our communities and neighbours and friends and family. And the speed at which a a rumour or a piece of disinformation could begin somewhere in the United States and then just spread and be, you know, one of your family members is sharing it to your your WhatsApp group. 
And that's very challenging because if it's a, a close friend or family member, you're more likely to pay attention to it. You're also just maybe a bit more reluctant to challenge it. So there's that social uh, dynamic. But overall here in Ireland, because we're a small English-speaking country, we're massively uh, influenced by what happens in the US in particular and also in the, the UK. So the kinds of disinformation stories that start uh, developing there, we see them here quite quickly. And, you know, what would be the standout examples that you would have about where disinformation has been effective that Ireland should be on the lookout for and maybe think about strategies, preventative strategies? Well, if you take the the story you were speaking to, to Malcolm about, about migrants, you know, there's a very sorry history of scapegoating migrants um, throughout human history. And right now that is happening across the world and here in Ireland. And I think it's very important that we put events in Ireland into that wider context because the disinformation tactics, the opportunistic politicians who jump on the anti-migrant bandwagon, you know, the media outlets to push controversy as a business strategy, the online platforms, none of these things is unique to Ireland. It's an international issue. The scapegoating of migrants is an international issue. And we need to learn from what's happening elsewhere and not, you know, persist with this idea that we're somehow unique and special and that our politics isn't vulnerable and our societies and communities aren't vulnerable. All right. Well, every so often, no matter what the, the malaise is, whether it's, you know, healthy eating or drug abuse or anything else, people say that the, the solution is education and it comes up in, ter- in relation to uh, false information online as well. I mean, is it reasonable to expect people uh, to be educated uh, across society in order to recognise and shy away from this kind of an information? Or is, is, are there other protective measures or enforcement measures that could be put in place? I think you need a whole range of things because disinformation is a very complex problem. So education is one aspect, but it's a long-term thing. You know, countries like Finland revised their entire education system and put media literacy at the heart of it. So people from a young age learn, and people also outside of formal education, they learn how media works, they learn about information literacy, digital literacy and so on. And that's great, but that in itself, you know, is not enough. Ultimately, when we think about disinformation, it's often a symptom of deeper issues. And we can try and address disinformation, but if we're not also addressing the deeper issues of what is driving inequality, why are there poor services, why are there people who rightly or wrongly believe that they're being left behind, you know, unless those issues are being addressed, I don't think that disinformation isn't going to go away. All right, Malcolm Byrne, we're at the beginning of a year where we're definitely going to have local and European elections, we'll definitely have referendums, we may have a general election. How does the state's uh, state of readiness stand at the moment to counter some of these threats in the env- the fast-moving environment of an election? I, I think there we're going to see artificial intelligence and deep fakes and a greater challenge of misinformation and disinformation. Uh, certainly, I, I'm not one of those who's afraid of artificial intelligence. I think AI and other emerging technologies are going to transform our lives in healthcare, in education, in transport in, in very positive ways. But we have to be very alert, and Eileen was right, talking about how We've always had misinformation and disinformation in election campaigns, but now with new technologies uh, and with social media platforms, there is the potential there to, to turbocharge that. Uh, and we've already seen it in other countries. We've seen it last year in elections in Slovakia and Argentina. 
There are certainly very serious concerns about what will happen. You mean in the deep US. fakes in those elections? We're talking about deep fakes, but, but also example, the use of the use of AI. Uh, so a very simple one that was used in the Slovakian um, uh, parliamentary elections, where there was uh, a deep fake created of one of the opposition leaders, uh, and it purported to be him announcing an increase uh, on tax in beer. Now it wasn't a particularly good deep fake. Some people were taken in by it, but during a general election campaign, announcing an increase in tax in beer is not necessarily a popular move. Uh, and so that your listeners will understand just what a deep fake is, technology is advanced now to the extent that uh, by simply picking up on somebody's voice, on their tone and timbre for a number of seconds, it's going to be able to replicate uh, you know, that voice and also by using facial gestures. We, we trust what we see or we trust what we hear. Um, you could imagine in the middle of a general election campaign, if somebody has created a very clever deep fake of Michal Martin or Leo Varadkar or Mary Lou MacDonald or Ivana Bacic or a prominent leader purporting to say something, uh, that video clip is shared. It's readily shared on, on social media before the denial gets out, the old line about a lie being halfway around the world. Uh, and that then suddenly becomes the debate. And it may have an impact on, on the outcome of, a, of an election. So I, I think Eileen is right. There has to be, part of it has to be an educational process. We do need to be more digitally and media literate, not just young people, but all sectors of society, understanding the potential of deep fakes, you know, how algorithms right. work. There are roles, I think, for the political parties. Uh, I think that all political parties should sign up to a code that says that, you know, we will not use deep fakes, that we will only use, if we're going to use AI, uh, it will only be used responsibly. There's also obviously a role for the regulators, uh, including the new Electoral Commission. Uh, and, you know, Electoral well, yeah, Commissions I, in other countries. Yeah, I, I want to get back to, to, to um, Eileen Cullody on that. Um, the Electoral Commission that's in place, uh, Eileen Cullody, what's your assessment of its powers to deal with disinformation in the fast-moving environment of an election campaign? Well, overall, I think the, the Electoral Commission is a great development uh, for Irish democracy. And as far as I know, it's the only body of its kind that has going to have powers to respond to disinformation and misinformation during uh, electoral events. And that's a huge challenge because it's a pioneer in this area and there are lots of issues uh, to think about and elections can take uh, unexpected turns. So I think the Commission's going to have to establish best practices itself and think about how it exercises those power. And you need to take a long-term view of this and think, you know, it's not just about the referendum that's coming up. It's about long-term, what is the best uh, practice for an electoral commission that has powers to intervene and to say something of disinformation or to ask for something to be taken down. So I don't think we should judge it on how it performs in the upcoming uh, referendums or even in elections this year. It's got to be a long-term thing. Right. And what, in terms of the powers for people who may not be, be aware of the powers it has, can it go to online platforms and seek the removal of information or is it sufficiently resourced with a communications uh, outfit of its own to be able to proliferate the counter-information into the, into the uh, uh, cyberspace during an election campaign? Yeah, it ultimately does have power to uh, to take to ask platforms to take uh, information down. The issue is that what we need is good evidence of whether that's a good policy. You know, is it a good idea to take something down if it's already spread? That type of stuff is what researchers are currently just looking at. And this, I think, one of the big challenges policymakers face is that the research just isn't there always, so that they can have evidence-based policies. One of the reasons the research isn't there is because social media platforms have not shared research data. 
Um, so one of the best things that could happen right now is that social media platforms are compelled to share data so that good research can be done on electoral events so that we know what, what the uh, the outcomes of events might be. For example, you know, fact checks are put on claims. We don't really know whether those things are even effective or not. It's just something that's done. The social media companies say, oh, we fact checked that. We put a we put a label on it. But we've no idea whether that's effective or not. And until we know that, we're kind of operating in the dark. OK. All right. There we have to leave it. Dr. Eileen Cullerty from the School of Communications in Dublin City University and Fianna Fáil Senator Malcolm Byrne. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll take a break. Back in a minute. Saturday with Colm O'Mungon on RTE Radio 1.